For businesses around the world, today isn't a restart, it's a rethink. That's why they're partnering with IBM. Retailers are keeping their systems up as millions of orders move online. Call centers are using IBM Watson to manage customer questions with AI. And solutions built on the IBM Cloud are helping patients receive trusted information. Today, we're rethinking how business moves forwards. Let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash smart slash UK to learn more. Hello and welcome to the Heredity Podcast with me, Dr. James Bergen. For over a century, inbred mice have been at the heart of genetics research. In fact, they're one of the most important models in all of biological and medical research. What makes them so valuable is that each inbred line has been developed so that all individuals within a single line are genetically identical. At least, that's the plan. But is it true? Well, that's what we're going to find out today as we talk to the authors behind the recent heredity paper, Inbred Lab Mice Are Not Isogenic, Genetic Variation Within Inbred Strains Used to Infer the Mutation Rate Per Nucleotide Site. And okay, sure, the title does kind of give the game away, but it is a really fascinating study with some really big implications for people using inbred mice in their research. Welcome to the Heredity Podcast. First of all, can you please both introduce yourselves? Sure, I'll start. I am Dr. Gibran Shabib, and I'm an evolutionary geneticist at the University of Edinburgh. Uh, I'm currently a ERC postdoctoral research fellow in Peter Keatley's lab, uh, where we're trying to answer questions about the prevalence and distribution of mutations. My name is Peter Keatley. I'm professor of evolutionary genetics at the University of Edinburgh, and I work on the interface between population genetics and quantitative genetics. Great. Well, thank you both for joining me to discuss your paper in Heredity. And it's kind of focused in on inbred isogenic mice, which is debatably the most important model in biology. Um, And I wonder if you could just describe a bit about what inbred mice are and why they're so important. Yeah, sure. Uh, I'll take this one. An inbred mouse line is really a population of mice that have been maintained exclusively by brother-sister mating or full-sib mating for many generations. This essentially reduces the genetic variation within those lines to close to zero. And really, that's the important key of why they're doing this, is that uh, the uh, genetic uniformity is the kind of goal of those inbreeding programs. Mm, Fantastic. One of the interesting things in this is exactly how they are made almost commercially for research, which is kind of what your paper is focused in on. So I wonder if you could just explain how these lines are maintained. Like, where do they come from? Yeah, of course. So like I mentioned before, these inbred mouse lines are typically maintained by brother-sister mating for many, often hundreds of generations. So what these companies do is they try to maintain very small number of generations to reduce the number of changes between different substrains. And the way they do that is by maintaining a stock of cryopreserved frozen embryos that they create production colonies out of those embryos. And every once in a while, they go back to those frozen stock embryos to make sure that they can maintain some genetic stability. Mm. And I guess the whole point behind this is that the more similar these mice are, the more you can use them in research and the more you can compare results across them. They're important for a few reasons. One is that they allow experimenters to vary only the parameters of interest and measure their effects. So ruling out any kind of genetic variance, which is important for you know estimating the relative contribution of heredity and environment. It's important for getting the relative importance of different environmental factors on the traits of interest and for discovering the phenotypic effects of mutations. Beyond that, 
it's also important for experimental reproducibility and comparability. Because you want to be able to say that the results that you observe in one study in one lab from individuals from one specific strain are also applicable to any other lab using individuals from that same strain. But I wonder exactly what it was in this study that you were focused in on. Peter, did you want to talk about our specific study? Yeah, I can talk about the aims of the study and and what we were trying to find out. So we, we actually studied four different strains of inbred mice obtained from the same commercial supplier. And the background is that we are carrying out a long-term mutation accumulation experiment um, in which we're, we're allowing spontaneous mutations to accumulate at random in lines derived from these four different strains. And to found the experiment, this particular experiment, we have a single pair of mice from each of the four strains. So these represent the founders of our main experiment. And the the aim of our study was to find out how much genetic variation was present within each of the four founder strains or the individuals that founded the experiment. It was a total of eight individuals of four different strains. Mm, Yeah. And I guess on the podcast, we're used to people talking about collecting their samples. I'm assuming you just ordered these ones? Well, it's it's not quite as simple as that, actually. It's to do with the way that the the mutation accumulation experiment is designed. But... Three of the strains came directly from the production colony. So that's a total of three pairs, six mice. In the case of one strain, which is actually the C3H strain, we asked the company to provide us with mice directly from their cryopreserved embryos. So that means that we expected this fourth strain, the C3H strain, to be closer to the, the sort of gold standard and the other strains to have potentially have evolved somewhat from the cryopreserved embryos because the production strain could be as many as 10 generations away from the cryopreserved embryos. Oh, that's interesting. So there is quite a lot of opportunity there for mutations to arise and like filter through the population. That's right. And I'm kind of curious as to what exactly you did with these samples. Um, So how were you comparing the mutation rates across them? So we've got eight mice of four different strains, and we used Illumina technology to sequence the four pairs of mice, the eight mice, at a high depth of coverage. And what we were looking for are genetic variants, which are actually just single nucleotide polymorphisms that are present in one strain and absent from all the others. And subject to some filtering, and these represent variants, these single nucleotide polymorphisms are unique to one strain segregating within one of the pairs of mice represent new variants that have arisen by mutation in that strain quite recently. Mm, It's interesting and I wonder what it was you were finding because I guess the assumption is that all of these mice should be genetically identical. What was it that you actually found? Yeah, so based on the fact that we're only using one breeding pair per line and we know about the mutation rate per nucleotide site in mice, we had a theoretical prediction about how much variation we would expect. And what we found was that in three of the inbred pairs of mice, the ones that we uh, obtained from the production lines, there was actually far more variation than we expected. Whereas in the pair that we obtained directly from the stock of frozen embryos, the variation closely matched our theoretical expectations. Uh, so we, yeah, we did believe that this difference was due to new mutations that arose during the colony production process. 
Mm, no, it's very interesting. I wonder if this sort of genetic variation that you're finding is something that people have kind of suspected has been there for a while, or if there's just always been an assumption that they are isogenic. I mean, there's been controversy about that. Some people have believed that, that a process called balancing selection operates, and it's strong enough to maintain variation within lines. And I think we didn't find any evidence for, for that in, in these mice. I mean, it depends what background you're coming from. If you come from a population quantitative genetics background, you can do a back-of-the-envelope uh, calculation to quantify the expected variation quite easily. But if, if you're not aware of, of the underlying theory, you might simply assume that the genetic variation is, is really trivial and, and would probably ignore it. Mm. No, it's interesting. And I guess there's a lot in this paper for people who are using these inbred lines to really think about. And I wonder what you think the impact this finding has on how we might be using these mice in research as you go forward. Is this something that you can account for? Does it need to be a change in how they're produced? Uh, well, working with inbred mice like is done very widely in biomedical and behavioral studies typically assumes genetic uniformity within the strains. But as we have seen, and I think there has been evidence uh, of this before, this is not the case. Individual mice will actually differ at many, maybe hundreds of sites across their genome. And these differences could be affecting the traits of interest. Hmm, interesting. So what would you say is the sort of big take-home message in this paper? So when people are reading it and they're thinking about how it might influence their own research, what is the main thing they should be coming away with? Uh, good question. I would say, I don't know about Peter, but I guess I would say that we need to suggest some caution when interpreting the results of the experiments uh, using mice from production lines, especially regarding their reproducibility and comparability to other experiments that use the same inbred strains. I guess, therefore, I would say that if you're working on inbred strains, it's important to specify the origin of your strains, including where the mouse came from and any substrain information you might have. Do you have something to add to that, Peter? Yeah, well, from, from our point of view, what we were trying to establish was how much variation we have within our different inbred strains or founders of our mutation accumulation experiment. And we need to know that because we've subsequently bred sublines from each of these founders. And with that, what we need to know is what mutations have arisen de novo in our own breeding process and what variation was there at the start of the experiment. So that's really why we did the experiment in the first place. Mm, no, it's incredibly interesting. And I guess that also kind of leads on to kind of thinking about where this now goes and what you're going to do with this research, because you've mentioned a couple of times that this is part of a wider set of projects you have going on. So what do you plan on doing with this information yourself? What's the next stage in this research? Uh, let Peter take this one. So, so as I said, we're breeding lines by brother-sister mating that are derived from our inbred founders. And what we are seeing is new variation accumulating in these lines, we need to be able to distinguish that new variation from the variation that pre-existed. This experiment will allow us to do that and quantify that effect. Mm. Um, what we're going to do with our mutation accumulation experiment is, is to sequence them by the same technology or, or using long-range sequencing technology. And we're also going to measure the change in various phenotypes. We're actually doing that as, as the experiment progresses including things like growth rate and fitness traits, to find out how, how much impact new mutations have on these traits. Mm. 
Fantastic. Well, thank you both very much for taking the time to share this research with us. And just to finish up, I wonder if you could just remind us of what it's called and also mention any of your co-authors who deserve a mention in this work. title is Inbred Mice Are Not Isogenic, Genetic Variation Within Inbred Strains Used to Infer the Mutation Rate Per Nucleotide Site. So the study was founded by the European Research Council and it's a collaboration with staff at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Biology, Plum in Germany. And the authors were myself, Gibran Shabib, as well as Benjamin C. Jackson, Eugenio Lopez Cortegeno, uh, Dietar Tauts, and Peter D. Keeley. Well, thank you very much for that and for joining me and sharing your research. Thank you. Thank you, James. Thanks to Gibran and Peter. If you want to read their paper, you can find it on the Heredity website. That's nature.com forward slash HDY. And from one of the most important lab systems in genetics to one of the most important processes. In the latest episode of Genetics Unzipped, we take a look at the story and the characters behind one of the most revolutionary lab techniques of modern molecular biology, the polymerase chain reaction, or PCR. While the controversial Nobel Prize winning biochemist Carrie Mullis often gets the credit for inventing PCR, spinning a fine story about DNA strands dancing in his head during a moonlit drive through California, there were other significant contributions along the way. So, should Mullis have won a Nobel Prize for literature rather than science? Genetics Unzipped is brought to you by the Genetics Society. Listen and download now from geneticsunzipped.com or wherever you get your podcasts. PCR changed the very nature of biological research. It's a fascinating story, so make sure you give it a listen. But that's us for today. Heredity is the official journal of the Genetics Society. You can subscribe to the Heredity podcast on all good podcast platforms, and you can follow us on Twitter. That's at Heredity Journal. If you want to get in touch with me directly, drop me an email at hereditypodcast.gen at gmail.com. I'm James Bergen. Thanks for listening. So that's Prosecco and popcorn for mum, craft beer for my brother, a vegan Christmas hamper for Carol down the road, gourmet brownies for the babysitter, a cheese taster box for what's our postman called again? Gin Botanicals for Auntie Hannah. At Borough Box, you can find the perfect something for everyone. And with 15% off when you use the code FESTIVE at BoroughBox.com, well, why not? BoroughBox, the home of great food and drink.